listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Let the Bible Speak. This broadcast is the beginning of a new series of studies on the first seven chapters of the book of Revelation. Let me begin by reading the first six verses of this book. Revelation chapter 1 verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of, of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Well, as we come to think about these verses, let's just have a short time of prayer. I encourage you to pray for yourself. Pray that God would speak to you from his word, even to your soul today. Eternal God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the word that gives clarity and light in times of darkness and we pray that you'd bless the word to your souls now we ask in jesus name amen believers today will approach revelation with different mindsets for some it will be a cause of tremendous fascination with an unending desire to understand all the various pictures and symbols that are used for others they approach the book of revelation with a sense of fear and trepidation how can we possibly understand all that is contained in this book? That spirit, that sense of difficulty, certainly reflects the history of the church through the centuries. You go back to the very early years of the Christian church and there were Christians who were actually questioning the divine inspiration of Revelation. In the time of the Reformation, many believed it was presently being fulfilled as the papacy was persecuting the Protestant church. When you move forward into the 19th century, there were various theological sects that were birthed by claiming to have unlocked the book of Revelation. In more recent decades, we've seen the Left Behind series. We've seen various attempts to set the date of Christ's return. There are others, and they have seen the fulfillment of Revelation and things like nuclear armaments in Apache helicopters, and there's been various views regarding what is the mark of the beast. And so there are all manner of theories and speculations and difficulties. But as we approach this book, it is important to recognize the language of the opening verses. The words of these opening verses are important as we consider the book as a whole. And in many ways, the opening verses will guard us from errors of interpretation. We see initially that this book is a revelation, the opening words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
This word revelation is the word that we get our English word apocalypse from. And we often think of apocalypse as being those events at the end times that are marked by tremendous chaos and turmoil. We think of battles and wars. But in the original sense, the word apocalypse speaks of the unveiling. But in apocalyptic literature in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, the unveiling occurs through the use of pictures, visions, symbols. And so you have to interpret Revelation understanding it is a book of apocalyptic literature. And so some of the symbols, they themselves must be interpreted as symbols before you then draw the literal meaning of the symbol. That process is important. And so Revelation is a, it is an apocalyptic book. It gives us much in the way of visions. We'll, we'll see often that John will say, and I saw. But as a book of Revelation, it is given to John by God. There's a process of revelation revealed here. Where we're told that God gave this revelation to Christ. And the Christ then showed that revelation to John through the angel. So the process here is this word comes from God to Christ to the angel and then to John. And it is a revelation that concerns Christ himself. It is the revelation of or about Jesus Christ. And in our consideration of revelation, that ought to be our burden or desire. We want to see the Lord Jesus in this book. We want to see Christ revealed. What does this book say to us about our Saviour? Oh yes, it is a book that has a prophetic sense. In fact, in these opening verses, we're told that it is about things which must shortly come to pass. Things which are yet to occur as John pens this book. So it is a, a revelation that has been recorded for us. We have here the language that this book can be read and heard. Verse number three, blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy. So we have here John, who has said in verse number two, to bear record of the word of God. This is a recorded revelation. We have this book, a book that is recorded and that indeed is reliable. It is recorded as a part of the inspired record. This book, John says, comes from Christ. And it comes from Christ through him. But through him, John, who bear faithful witness and record of what God said in this book. This book bears the character of inspired scripture. John tells his readers that those who hear and do, those who obey the words of the book, are indeed blessed. And we know that in light of the Old Testament, blessing comes to the people of God in obedience to the word of God. And so even using this terminology of blessing, John is, John is claiming the fact that this is inspired scripture. He also gives a warning in the, the last book that is very consistent with the warnings of the Old Testament. He warns anybody against adding to or taking away the things of this book. It says in chapter 22 in the verse number 18, 
For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. So these words that John writes, they are given to him by God and he conveys them faithfully and reliably. He does not add to them. He does not take away from them. And these are words that come from God himself. Therefore, they are words that are profitable to us. This is a revelation that is recorded, that is reliable, and that is relevant. It is written. It is written to servants according to the words of verse number one. We are given the identity of these servants in verse number four. For it says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. We will see these seven churches later in chapters two and three. But these are real historic churches that were present in John's time. John here is John the Apostle who also wrote the Gospel of John and the three epistles. John is here the one who at this time is on the Isle of Patmos persecuted for the Gospel. John is the one best known to the Asian churches. He spent some time, we are told, in Ephesus. And so he is, he is writing to real churches And so whenever you begin to interpret Revelation, you must be careful to ensure that your interpretation has relevance to the churches that John is writing to in his day. It has to be relevant to the churches in Asia. These churches are suffering. The church father Irenaeus tells us that John wrote Revelation toward the end of the mission's reign in and around AD 95. The secular writers who describe the Roman Empire explained Domitian to be a savage monster conducting a reign of terror. He hated Christians, he despised the Church of Christ, and in his reign there is the first empire-wide persecution of the Christian Church. He loved to see the pain and the agony of those he tortured. He was referred to the beast of a man, and there are many interpreters who believe he was, if you like, the first beast, the the first fulfillment of the beast image of Revelation chapter 13. He commanded everyone in the empire to call him Lord and God. And of course Christians refused to do so and those who refused he persecuted and killed. John makes reference to this matter of persecution where he describes himself in verse 9, I John who also am your brother and companion in tribulation. And so we're seeing that this book of Revelation was written to a church that are suffering. They're they're suffering persecution at the hands of this evil man, Domitian. And as they suffer persecution, so John, as he writes the words of Christ, brings comfort to them. The opening greeting, the greetings like one of Paul's epistles, says, Grace be unto you and peace. From him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. These words of greeting indicate the need that every Christian has at all times. But it has a special significance when you think of the suffering of the Christian church in this time. He says they need grace and peace. He's writing to churches. These are people who know and love the Lord. 
They already know the saving grace described in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace are you saved. The grace that he is praying for them in this greeting is the grace that sustains them. It's the grace that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where the Lord speaks to him and says, My grace is sufficient. And he refers to that grace as a power, a power to endure the various thorns that life will bring. God's grace, God's power is sufficient for the child of God. How a suffering church needs to hear the assurance that God will give them grace. And at the same time, God will give them peace. This peace is it's not the peace whereby the enemies of God are reconciled to him. We, we have that. Praise God, we have that. That those who are justified have peace with God. But this is the peace that comes from God. The peace that is the peace of God. We get an insight into this peace when we think of the words of Christ in John chapter 14, where he says to the apostles, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And so the peace that Christ gives is a peace that is the opposite of a troubled heart and an afraid heart. It is a peace that is marked by tranquility, just like the tranquility that God has. Paul refers to the same in Philippians chapter 4, where he tells the believers to be careful for nothing. In other words, not to be anxious. And as they are not anxious, as they are not careful but prayerful, so the peace of God keeps their hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And so John is encouraging the suffering saints in Asia in Revelation chapter 1 with this greeting that assures them that they will have grace and peace. Grace to sustain them in their sufferings and the peace that will settle them in their, in their trial. And this peace comes from the triune God. You'll note the references that John makes here. It is from him which is and which was and which is to come. It is from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And we'll see that that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And it is from Jesus Christ and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. This is a tremendous encouragement because we understand here that grace and peace comes to the church from the triune God, from the Father who is described here as being him which is and which was and which is to come. That's a reference back to the self-revelation of God to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14, that I am who I am, that God is the self-sufficient eternal God the God that is outside of time. That is the encouragement. The God is the one who is able, sufficient to give every grace that we need in times of trial. God is the one who is able to give us this peace. God who knows no anxiety, no care. The self-sufficient God, supremely tranquil, is able to give us grace and peace. Now, just as a side note... We should see that in verse number 8 of this chapter, Christ describes himself saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. It's significant there that he takes to himself the same attributes of the Father referred to in the verse number 4. It's just another proof text of the deity of Christ, that the Father and Son are co-equal and co-eternal in the Godhead. But I think the reference in the greeting 
is a reference to the Father in connection with the Spirit and the Son. We have the triune God as the source of grace and peace. The Lord, through John, is reminding these suffering saints of the importance of having faith in God in times of trial. And what we see true for these suffering saints is true for all of us in in all ages. It is vital that we hold on to the Lord in our seasons of affliction. Sometimes we need to be simply reminded that God is, that he is there. Because we live so much of our lives in the assumption that God is not. We believe he is not concerned with our affairs. He is not concerned with our trials. But I believe that Christ, through John, wants all believers to understand that though there are dark clouds of trouble, and though they come, yet God is the great I am. God is the ever-present God who is in our past, in our present, and will be in our futures. You, You think of the suffering saints that are addressed in the book of Hebrews. They're reminded that without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. To persevere in affliction, you must be clear that God is. Even the Lord himself speaks to the concerned disciples in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me the importance of faith. And so Christ is encouraging the saints through John, grace be unto you and peace from the Father, from the eternal self-sufficient Father and also from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Naturally, this terminology causes some confusion. How can there be seven spirits? And if there are seven spirits, therefore it must not be a reference to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. But this must be a reference to the Holy Spirit. Only God is the source of grace and peace. And John can only pray to God for grace and peace to be given to the church. And so the use of the word seven is a reference here to the perfection, the completion of the Spirit of God. There are Old Testament references that indicate the importance of the number seven in connection with the Spirit of God. In Zechariah chapter 4, we have the words of God to Zerubbabel saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And, and those words fulfill or explain the picture that is given to Zechariah of a candlestick with seven lamps and seven pipes to the seven lamps. And so there's a connection here between the number seven and the work of the Spirit of God in the church. It's also significant in Isaiah chapter 11 that in the messianic prophecy of a stem of Jesse coming, Christ coming, the Messiah coming, there's a sevenfold description of the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. There are seven terms used to describe the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God in Revelation chapter 5 is described as being sent. I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Now we know that the lamb sent forth the Holy Spirit. That's taught in Acts chapter 2. But here described as the seven spirits of God. 
And so we're seeing here the encouragement that Christ gives to the suffering church, that Christ will send his spirit, his spirit that will supply light, the revelation of Christ, the spirit sent into the church, the spirit that is sufficient. What a vital encouragement this is to the suffering church that John is addressing. They are those who need to know that grace and peace will come from the Spirit that has been sent to minister to the church in the world. So this prayer, this greeting for grace and peace comes from the Father and from the Spirit, but also comes from the Son. And the threefold description of the Son is indeed very precious. Grace and peace from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. These words are written to suffering saints. Each term is packed with truth that greatly encourages all saints in all ages. Christ is described as the faithful witness. The word witness there is the word that we get our word martyr from. In fact, the word is translated with the word martyr in chapter 2 in the verse number 13. To the church in Pergamum, Christ speaks and says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you. Here, Antipas is described as a faithful martyr, a faithful witness. And so in chapter 1, John uses this term for Christ himself. He is writing to suffering saints, some of whom have been martyred. Later on in chapter 6, we'll read, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held, that were testimony connected to the thought of witness. And they cried out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, Dost thou not judge and avenge your blood on them that dwell on the earth? It was important to these saints that Christ was faithful as a witness, that his witness was true, that he who died for his own witness would indeed give grace and peace to those who are suffering for that very same witness. It's important that Christ identifies with them, and so they have the assurance that they'll have grace and peace from one who knows their sufferings. He himself was faithful, he is true, and he was a witness, a martyr. And so Jesus is the great source of our grace and peace, one who suffered in our stead, and we follow in his footsteps. What an encouragement this is, that we who seek to be faithful to Christ have the assurance of grace and peace from our faithful witness. What a motivation this is to be faithful in our service of Christ, to make much of Christ and to speak of him and his gospel in a lost and a fallen world, even though that may lead to the point of our death for Christ's sake. And so Christ is the faithful witness. He's also described as the first begotten from the dead. Here is a description of Christ's resurrection, that though he died, yet he rose again. He is the one who guarantees the resurrection of the saints. Because he rose, so we also shall rise in him. Again, you think of who he's writing to here. He's, he's writing to suffering saints. He's writing to those who are losing their life for the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
And here the Lord is encouraging them. Grace and peace comes from one. Though he died, yet now he lives. He's the living Christ, able to minister grace and also the one who guarantees our future resurrection. He's also in the third place described as the prince of the kings of the earth. It should not be too difficult to consider how this is a tremendous encouragement to the suffering church. They are suffering at the hands of the king of the earth. Domitian rules. He rules over all the nations and they're suffering at his hand. And yet they're encouraged here. Do not be discouraged, dear saint of God. There is one in the heavens. He is your saviour. He is Jesus Christ. He is the prince of the kings of the earth. He rules over all the kings. He has a name above every name. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And Domitian only does what he does in the sovereign permission of Christ Jesus. And that Christ is the one who caused Domitian to rise and who will bring Domitian down. And so we understand that even in our sufferings, we are suffering under the care of our sovereign King and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so in the very opening words of this prophecy, we see that this book is given to comfort and to strengthen and encourage the suffering saints. And it is to these seven churches. And there are more than seven churches in Asia. And so the reference to seven indicates that these churches are representative. They're representative of the entire suffering church. And thus there is encouragement that comes to us also. That we are those who should be encouraged by this book. That we should remind ourselves again that grace and peace comes to us from our self-sufficient eternal Father. From the Spirit of God sent to minister to us. And from our Saviour, the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, we should be encouraged that we as a church, we are ministered to by the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That ministry is sufficient to strengthen us and enable us to live for Christ in a fallen world. And so may we be encouraged as we begin this series of studies in the book of Revelation. May we be encouraged to press on and to keep on following Christ. And if you're not a believer, may this book encourage you to seek Christ, who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He is the only one who can save your soul. May God bless his word to your heart today. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.